Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Psalm 19. I know you're thinking, what are we doing with Psalms? We're supposed to be in Genesis. And uh, we're going to get in Genesis, but um, I'm already breaking from what I said. I said we're going to get through the first 12 chapters of Genesis in 12 weeks, and we're probably not going to make it. I've already deviated from the plan um, but Psalm 19 this morning, we got to set some ground rules, and I felt that this was so important. Before we even get into Genesis, we've got to, we've got to make some decisions about how we're going to interpret this. And so um, I felt like it was uh, important enough that we needed to devote a weekend to it. Psalm 19, though, will kind of be our spring for, springboard for our discussion this morning. Psalm 19, many of you know it. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the works of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth. Their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of its chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. It rises from one of the heavens, and its circuit is the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. And sweeter also than the honey and the dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them their servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of my hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins, and let them not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless. I'll be acquitted of great transgressions. Let the words of my heart and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. As always, my prayer is, as we study the Word of God, that we would have a personal encounter with God. That as we study Him in His Word, He would speak to us and we would be changed. And that is my prayer, not just this morning, but every morning, especially as we work our way through this marvelous book of Genesis. But before we even begin, like I said, as I was introing my message for Genesis chapter 1, I found myself so caught up in the intro, I thought we've got to spend a week just right here before we even get into the book. So bear with me this morning because I believe this is critical before we take another step. I'm going to put a statement up on the screen that's going to kind of govern our walk through Genesis, but I wanted you to see it. And the statement is this, the Genesis account of creation is true and we will interpret it literally. And we've got to talk about this because I say that the Genesis account is true. And what does true mean? What is truth? Well, if you go to uh, Wikipedia, if you Google this, uh, the truth is defined as that which is in accordance with reality or fact. That which is in accordance with reality and fact. And I know it's commonplace in our world today to say that there is no absolute truth, that, that truth is relative, truth is whatever you want to make it to be. But that statement that there is no absolute truth, that statement by itself, it won't stand. It's a crazy statement because when you say there is no absolute truth, you're making a statement that is, in your mind, absolutely true, that there is no absolute truth. And that won't stand. 
Um, the fact of the matter is, truth cannot exist unless there is an ultimate objective standard by which to measure it. Truth cannot exist unless there is an ultimate objective standard by which to measure it. And with that in mind, I tell you today that the ultimate objective source of truth is God. God is the fountainhead of all truth. He is the infinite reference point that gives meaning to all the finite points of our life. Now, the skeptic, and maybe even some of you that are in this room or watching online, is probably saying to yourself, that is only true if God exists. And do you know what we would say? You are absolutely right. And you know what we believe? God does exist. And he has revealed himself to us to show us his existence. Um, you know, you cannot know a person unless they act or speak. You can't know anybody unless they act or speak. You know the beauty of God? He has both acted and he has spoken. He's revealed himself as in, in creation, what we would call general revelation, and then in his word, both living and written, which we would call specific revelation. That in his creation, creation speaks to us of the existence of God. We just read it, Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the works of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. No one walks up to Mount Rushmore and says, wow, look at what time and chance and wind and rain produces. No, the intricacy of the design and the images that are on that mountain give evidence to a grand designer. Well, creation speaks to us. As we're going to see as we walk through Genesis and the sun and the moon and the stars, man made in the image of God, the intricacies, the precision, and the order of creation indicates there, there is a grand designer. It's why scripture says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Why? Because the existence of God is plain in his creation as Romans 1 tells us. You know, Dawkins in his book and spent a lot of time this week looking at some of the works of, of Richard Dawkins really the past few weeks and, and watching some of his videos. But in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, he said this. Listen to this. He said, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of being designed for a purpose. He says they give the appearance of being designed for a purpose. And then you know what he goes on to say? But there is no design. There is no purpose and there is no order. It's a crazy statement. It looks like it. But there's not. It's all chaotic. It's just a product of chance. Now, why does he come to that conclusion? Why does he come to that conclusion? Because he begins with the presupposition that God doesn't exist. It's so interesting to me. The more I read of this, science will tell us we will follow the truth wherever it leads. And that's not true because if it leads them to God, they'll say he doesn't exist. Every great scientist, the early scientists, we're all, all of them had at least a belief in God, and many of them, we, we would say, were Christians, even though some of them weren't as orthodox as what we'd like them to be. But Newton, Kepler, Galileo, all of them began with the understanding that God exists. In fact, what they would have said is science is the study of creation as it gives evidence to the glory of God. That's what they would have said. And it's so interesting to me that so much of science today has cut itself off from the ultimate infinite reference point of God and it's just trying to find meaning in all the particulars and know, you know what they come to the conclusion of? There is no meaning, there is no purpose because they've cut themselves off from God, the infinite reference point. 
And so creation, creation itself gives, gives evidence to the existence of God. But how do we most fully know God? He is most fully known in his word and in Christ. You remember Jesus, as we study it in Matthew, when Jesus was before Pilate, and Pilate was asking him, are you a king? In John 18, 37, you'll see the, the reference on the screen. I encourage you, we, if you're new to Lex, this is not what we typically do. We typically, we take a passage and we work through it. But I thought this was important enough. So you're going to see a lot of scripture. I tried to put it on the screen for you. If you want to jot these verses down, which I encourage you to do, don't take my word for it. Make sure you study this on your own. So go and look at these more fully in their context later. But John 18, 37, Jesus before Pilate says this, For this reason I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth hears my voice. According to this verse, why did Christ say that he came into the world? He came into the world to testify to the truth. That Christ is the embodiment of truth because he's the embodiment of God. This means that in everything Christ said and everything he did in the flesh was the embodiment of truth and in keeping with ultimate reality. In fact, 75 times in the Gospels he says, I tell you the truth. And at least 25 times in the Gospel of John he says, truly, truly, I say to you. And what is the ultimate demonstration that Jesus is God and that he is the truth? the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Listen, God is truth, and he is the fountainhead of all truth. He's the infinite objective standard by which we find meaning to all the particulars of this world. So here's the question. How has man responded? If God is truth, how has man responded to the truth? Well, in Romans chapter 1, and I wish we had time to, to camp out in these passages a little bit more. But in Romans 1.18, uh, Paul says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul says that God has placed the knowledge of the truth in every one of us. There's a knowledge of the truth in every one of us, and what we choose to do in our sin is to suppress that truth. It's like trying to hold a beach ball under, underwater that we're suppressing the truth in our sin. And then he goes on to say in Romans 1.25, for they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator. So not only did we suppress in our sin, but now we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And it's not that the lies are necessarily clever, it's that in our sinfulness, we're inclined to buy into the lies. And why do we want to buy into the lie that there is no absolute truth? Because if there is absolute truth, what does it mean? It means there is objective right and wrong and good and bad and beautiful and ugly. There's, there's, there's an objective reference point. And we don't want to be accountable to truth. We want to do whatever we want to do in our sin. So we exchange the truth for a lie and worship the creation or the creature rather than the creator. So what you see occurring here is a battle between the truth of God's word and the lies of who? The lies of Satan because John 8 tells us that Satan is the father of all lies. That this battle between the truth of God and the lies of Satan started the moment that, God, or that Satan entered into the garden and immediately his words were what? He he tells a lie, doesn't he? He, he puts forth his own truth claims. And he says, did God really say, you will not surely die? And he lied to them. He gave them a choice. His truth claims or the, the truth claims of God. And which did they choose? 
they chose the lie. And they chose poorly. And the battle was on. And listen to me, the battle continues today. Satan is constantly, we've got to be so aware of this, folks. Satan is constantly deceiving men and women, offering his own truth claims against the truth claims of the word of God. And every day, we are encountering this lies and we have to make a choice. We gotta choose. And behind every sin is a lie of Satan. And what you believe will determine the decisions you make. And the decisions you make will determine the path you're on. And the path you're on will determine your ultimate destination. And what did Jesus say? I have come that you might have life. That the path of Christ is a path of the truth. And it's a path that leads to life. And Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. That there's a way that seems right unto man, but in the end it leads to what? Destruction. You can buy into the lies of Satan, but ultimately they end in destruction. And to a large extent, what do we know? We know that our world, our culture, has chosen to disconnect itself from the truth of God's word. And, and what do we call? What happens when a person is disconnected from the truth? What do we call a person who is disconnected with truth and therefore reality? What do we call that person? This is interactive. What do we call that person? They are insane, aren't they? They're crazy. Listen to me. Uh, I love this. Del Tackett in his series, The Truth Project, if you've seen that, he's the, he says if you're driving across country and you happen upon an institution and you walk into that institution and somebody comes up to you and says to you, I'm Abraham Lincoln, and another individual walks up and says, no, I'm God and I made you Caesar. Where have you ended up? You're in an insane asylum. And folks, to a large extent, does it feel like we're living in an insane asylum today? Listen to me, the further and further away you get from the truth and the reality of God's word, the crazier it gets until it feels like where in the world are we living? It feels like crazy world. But before we get too high and mighty, let's remember that all of us prior to faith, we were held captive by the lies, weren't we? Until what happened? Was it that we were smarter than everybody else and we figured out the truth is this? No, what happened? At some point or another, if we came to the knowledge of the truth, it's because the light of God had shone in our hearts. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 4? The the God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who shone in our light, in our hearts to give us the light of Christ, to illumine our hearts to the truth of who we are and who Christ is, who God is, and he is holy and we're sinful. And then we sought for a savior that we found in Jesus Christ. John 8, 31 and 32, and you'll see this verse on the screen. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will what? The truth will set you free. Now, there's a lot of institutions, a lot of colleges that have borrowed from the Bible, and they've corrupted this verse for their own purposes, and what they're saying is, come to our school, we're going to teach you the real truth, and that truth is going to set you free. But that is not what Christ was saying. Well, Christ was saying, if you know me, if you're my disciple, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Freedom from what? Freedom from the lies of Satan. You remember Jesus in Luke's gospel, he said, the spirit of God is upon me and he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to set the captives free. 
Does this mean that Jesus came to literally go into prison cells and take shackles off people and set them free out of prisons? No. He came to set us free from Satan and his lies that ultimately lead to death. So we have this battle occurring between the truth of God and the lies of Satan. You're wondering, well, what does this have to do with Genesis? Well, here's why I feel like this is so important. I believe in my heart that one of the most strategic moves of Satan against Christ and his kingdom was to attack the truthfulness and the validity of Genesis 1 through 12. Because Satan knows that Genesis 1 through 12 is the foundation of all biblical truth. In fact, I think that most Jewish Christians would say that sometimes we get it backwards because we will start with Christ, won't we? And they will say that we're starting with the roof and we've neglected the the true foundation, which is Genesis. But Satan knows if he can attack the foundation of biblical truth, which is Genesis 1 through 12, then it all begins to crumble. That if he can get us to slide on Genesis 1, eventually he gets us to slide on the authority of Scripture and eventually the deity of Christ. That's why Paul said in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Who is Paul talking to there? He's talking to Christians. It's a warning to Christians. You've got to be careful because you can be taken captive. In fact, if you return to John 18, 37, In Jesus' interaction with Pilate, he says, For this reason I've been born and come into the world to testify the truth, and everyone who is on the what? On the side of truth hears my voice. What is implied in that statement? What's implied is there's sides. And I know this is not politically correct, but this is true. There are sides, and you are either on the side of the truth of God's word, or you have been taken captive by the lies. And everyone's got to decide, what side are you on? Do you believe this book? Do you believe that it is the word of God? Do you believe that it's perfect and errant and fallible, that it's true? Folks, this is fundamental. It's why I believe we've got we to just take a moment to consider this before we even go any further. Because listen, if you're here this morning and you think Genesis 1 through 12 is a fairy tale or just a poem, you might as well skip the next 12 to 15 weeks. We've got to choose. And the more I thought about this, you know, Billy Graham, at the early part of his ministry, you know, he had to make a choice. He had to make a choice. Uh, Many of you know the story of Charles Templeton and Billy Graham came up together and many felt like Charles Templeton was going to be the greater evangelist. But they began to part ways. And Charles Templeton, as they parted ways, he wrote about an interaction with Billy Graham. So this this is Charles Templeton's words concerning a discussion with Billy Graham. It's on the screen. I want you to see this quote. This is Charles Templeton about Billy Graham. He says, all of our differences came to a head in a discussion which better than anything else I know explains Billy Graham and his phenomenal success as an evangelist. In the course of our conversation, I said, but Billy, it's simply not possible any longer to believe, for instance, the biblical account of creation. The world was not created over a period of days a few thousand years ago. It's evolved over millions of years. It's not a matter of speculation. It's a demonstrable fact. I don't accept that, Billy said. And there are reputable scholars who don't. Who are these scholars, I said? Men in conservative Christian colleges? Most of them, yes. But he said, that's not the point. 
I believe in the Genesis account of creation because it's in the Bible. And I've discovered something in my ministry. When I take the Bible literally, when I proclaim it as the word of God, my preaching has power. When I stand on the platform and say, God says, and the Bible says, the Holy Spirit uses me. There are results. Wiser men than you or I have been arguing these questions for centuries. I don't have the time or the intellect to examine all sides of the theological disputes, so I've decided once for all to stop questioning and accept the Bible as God's word. And aren't we grateful that early on he made that choice? Charles Templeton, as many of you know, went on to become a hardened atheist. In fact, he wrote a, wrote a book called Farewell to God. But in the latter years of his life, this is interesting, in the latter years of his life, not long ago we had Lee Strobel here. In the latter years of, of Charles Templeton's life, Lee Strobel had an opportunity to interview Charles Templeton. And in the course of that conversation, Strobel maneuvered the conversation to Christ. And Strobel says that amazingly, all of a sudden, Templeton's body language softened. And he took on a reflective tone. And listen to what he said about Christ. This is Charles Templeton about Christ. He said he was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was intrinsically the wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my reading. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. And Strobel then commented, you you sound like you really care about Christ. He said, well, yes, he acknowledged. He's the most important thing in my life. And then he stammered, "I, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. And, and Strobel was stunned, and he listened in shock, and he says that Templeton's voice began to crack, and then he said, I, I miss him. And he burst into tears, and he wept bitterly. Listen to me this morning. You may dispute the truth of Christ. You may even reject him. But he is there and he is real and he is true. And where did the lies begin in this man's life? Genesis. And where did the foundation for Billy Graham's faith begin? Genesis. And this is so important for us to understand as we begin this study. Your understanding of Genesis 1 is critical to your understanding of truth and the authority of Scripture, and Christ, and ultimately, and it's, it's an issue of salvation. This is essential business to our faith. And it appears to me that far too often we as Christians have gotten to a place where, where we're scared to death to say that we believe in a literal Genesis 1 because maybe we're afraid that some scientist is going to come and whomp us over the head with a telescope and say we're a bunch of simpletons and a bunch of country bumpkins who don't know anything. Listen, I already got an email this week from a guy at Fresno State University, and I haven't even preached a word, basically mocking me. But listen, when you're on the side of truth, you don't have anything to be afraid of. In so many ways, I think we've given up the high ground when it comes to this debate. And I want to read you a quote. I want you to say, I've got a lot of quotes here. I love this. I, if you want a good book on Genesis, uh, A.W. Pink has a book called Gleanings in Genesis, and I've just loved it. I, I just can't get enough of it. And there was a quote in there as I was beginning the book. It was so awesome. I went home, told Faith about it immediately. I was pumped. If this doesn't get you pumped up, even more than the Chiefs, all right? This is, this is good stuff. Just listen, just listen to this quote from A.W. Pink. 
He says, what follows in Genesis 1 is to be regarded not as a poem, still less as an allegory, but as a literal historical statement of divine revelation. We have little patience with those who labor to show that the teaching of this chapter is in harmony with modern science, as well ask whether the celestial chronometer is in keeping with the timepiece in Greenwich. Rather must it be the part of the scientists to bring their declarations into accord with the teachings of Genesis 1 if they are to receive the respect of the children of God. The faith of the Christian rests not in the wisdom of man, nor does it stand in any need of buttressing from scientific savants. The faith of the Christian rests upon the impregnable rock of Holy Scripture, and we need nothing more. Too often, the Christian apologists have deserted their proper ground. For instance, one of the ancient tablets of Assyria is deciphered, and then it's triumphantly announced that some statements found in the historical portions of the Old Testament have been confirmed. But that is only the turning of things upside down again. The word of God needs no confirming. If the writing upon an Assyrian tablet agrees with what is recorded in Scripture, that confirms the historical accuracy of the Assyrian tablet. If it disagrees, that is proof positive that the Assyrian writer was at fault. In like manner, if the teachings of science square with Scripture, that goes to show the former are correct. If they conflict, that proves the postulates of science are false. The man of the world and the pseudoscientist may sneer at our logic, but that only demonstrates the truth of God's word, which declares, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And I think far too often we as Christians are just, boy, I hope science backs up the word of God. I hope that archaeologist comes up with a good dig that, you know. Listen, we're not waiting on science to confirm the word of God. The word of God needs no confirming. And as the people of God, the people who have been trusted with the truth of God, it is past time that we stop being fearful of what some individual or or some professor might say to us about believing in the truth of God's word. God and his word stand sovereign over science and creation. God didn't read Newton. Newton read God. And it's so interesting to me um, that if you, if you study in this realm, as I've done, and I'm just touching the surface, but it appears to me that as you study this, you, you, you look at the atheists, those, uh, the, those who purport the Darwinistic evolution, and you, you watch them in their debates. Here's what it looks like to me. What they're basically saying is, you guys are just a bunch of people of faith, and we're a people of facts. That's what they're, if, if you get down to the bottom line, they're saying, you guys, you're all about faith and we're a people of facts. Listen, do not let them fool you. Everybody is believing in something. When you get down to it, the ultimate question, the ultimate question is not even necessarily who is Christ, but the ultimate question is where did all this stuff come from and why does it appear to have order and design? And there's only really three answers and everybody falls into one of these three answers. Either you believe, as Carl Sagan, if you've watched some of his Cosmos series, he'll, I'll do my best Carl Sagan. He's got that video series with the, the waves crashing behind him in his tweed jacket. I tried to do this this morning. He says, the cosmos is all there has ever been, all there is, and all there ever will be. That's my best. That's as good as I got. All right. But, but what is he saying there, folks? What is he saying? 
He's saying that the universe, the cosmos, is eternal. That it has no beginning. Folks, it takes a lot of faith to believe that. The second category is that there was nothing and then there's something. So if it's not eternal, it has a beginning. And most will say now that it has a beginning. Well, if it has a beginning, you've got to say there was nothing and then there's something. Folks, I don't know about you. That takes a lot of faith as well. Or, or in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But it's not as though we are just a people of faith and they are a people of facts. Listen, they weren't there either. Everybody's believing in something. And the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear, timidity, but of sound mind and good judgment. I want to be very careful here. We love science. And it is beautiful. When it's studied in light of the understanding that God is there. And he gives meaning to all the particulars. So that as we, you know, you just think about a blood clot. Folks, why don't we get cut and just bleed out? Oh, it's beautiful. God has designed us and created us perfectly and intricately. But I want to stop here because I just want, I am so sick and tired. I have seen too many students see their faith shattered because of one professor or teacher who told them, you are a fool. And I'm tired of it. And you need to know, the more I study this stuff, Richard Dawkins, and, and he's got this quote out there, and he was confronted on this quote, because the, the quote is mean. And he was confronted on it, and he basically said, well, you know, you could tell he's a little uncomfortable, but then he says, but it's true. You know, it is what it is, so get over it. That's his, I mean, that's the way he talks. If you've watched interviews with this guy, it's rough. But listen to this quote. He says, it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet up with someone who claims to believe or not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. And I just want to say that because I want our students, and I want us to be reminded to some extent of what we're up against. If you believe in God as ultimate truth, and you believe that his word is true, you better be ready. Now, what is to be our response? Look very quickly as we close. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. It says there, the Lord's bondservant. And I want you to see this because this is so critical. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. I say this because students, you're going to be in these classrooms sometimes. Some point or another, you're going to be confronted with this. Whether in high school or college, you're going to be confronted with this. We're not to be quarrelsome. Does that mean we don't have... Uh, conversations, yes, but we are not quarrelsome. He goes on to say, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God might grant them repentance, leading them to what? Leading them to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to what? Their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Our heart towards the world, to those who don't know Christ, our prayers, just as Christ 
shone his light in our hearts so that we saw the truth. Our prayer is that Christ would shine the light in their hearts so that they could see the nature of the lies and see the truth of God and run to Jesus Christ. And I know in a room this size and those watching online, some of you today, listen, you've been taken captive by Satan and his lies. And one of the greatest lies of Satan is accordance with the nature of man. And one of the biggest lies of Satan, first of all, one of the biggest lies is that you're just a product of time and chance. You're just goo man or goo woman. You are an accident, a cosmic accident. And then we wonder why there's so much. And listen, that is the ultimate conclusion that they come to. I wish I had more time, but listen, that's where they get to. If you're just looking for meaning in the particulars of life, there is no meaning, and they admit it. You can go online and watch the videos. You know what they tell you? There is no purpose. There is no meaning. There is no afterlife. You know what one guy said? You know what you, you, know what you really get? He says intellectual satisfaction. That's what you get. Boy, how depressing that you are just a bubble floating on a sea of nothingness. That's what the world lies and says. You know what God says? God says you're made in the image of God. You're perfectly made. You're purposefully made. You have dignity because you're made in his image. The other lie of the world is they will tell you that although you have no purpose, no meaning, there's no afterlife, you know what the world will tell you? You're basically good. It's a lie because we are sinners. That's the truth of God's word. But the truth of the matter is God so loved the world. And you can just insert your name right there. God so loved you. That he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I pray today, if you're held captive by Satan and his lies, you would see the truth of Christ. You would see yourself as a sinner, and you would run to him as your only means of salvation. Listen to me. Satan is a liar. And truth and salvation are only found in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we... God, we come before you this morning just so grateful for the life that we have found, the truth that we have found in Christ. I pray if there's anybody here this morning who doesn't know you, maybe they're stumbling around in the darkness trying to find meaning. And we truly believe that if you're looking for meaning and purpose in the stuff of this world, you're always going to be left empty. You might find little momentary periods of peace and happiness and joy, but true and ultimate life is only found in Christ. And so I pray if there's any that are wandering around in the darkness looking for life, I pray today that the light of Christ would shine in their heart and they would turn to you and know your salvation. They would know the truth, the truth of Christ, and the truth would set them free. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would regain and recommit ourselves to the truth of your word. And not just saying we believe in it, but living it. If we really believe this is true, how would it affect our lives? God, I believe that if your people would truly live like this book is true, we would turn the world upside down. Lord, help us not to make great claims, but to live lives that demonstrate the truth of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. 
amen. I want to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. There'll be pastors here at the front who would love to talk with you. Maybe you just want to pray right where you're at. This is your time this morning. Know this, you will never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.